This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. We discuss the most recent public health measures to combat the coronavirus pandemic, as well as the recent announcements on social security support and what the next coronavirus economic stimulus package means for you. Then my next guest, author Christina Thompson, joined me to talk about her book, Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. We explore the quest to understand who first settled the islands of the remote Pacific, where they came from and how they got there. Then finally, Associate Professor Gemma Carey, Research Director of the Centre for Social Impact at UNSW, joined me to talk all about the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19, and how it is affecting people with a disability and or a chronic illness. We talk about what support the government and the NDIS need to provide so that people with a disability and their carers are not left behind or put at increased health risk. I'm very pleased that I do have with me via Skype today Ben Eltham, who joins me now and will be discussing federal politics. Hi there, Ben. Yeah, morning, Amy. Um, how do I sound? You sound fantastic. Oh, Crystal good, good. clear. Yes. I'm in my pyjamas. <laughs> it's definitely conjuring a picture. I think you're going to have to clarify what type of pyjamas. Are they flannel or are we going for something a bit nicer? Well, they're actually a pair of tracksuit pants and a T-shirt. But anyway. Versatile, very versatile. You can go from bed to outdoors and no one would know. Absolutely. All I need is a gold chain and I'm ready for action. <laughs> Such a gangster, Ben. Now, let's talk about federal politics and all that is happening. It's really one of the most, if not the most, tumultuous times in federal politics and it has a lot of major and very serious consequences. And journalists over the weekend were scrambling to try and make sense of what the federal and state governments were doing and their announcements. And certainly it did appear that there was tension and contradictions between some of the announcements we were seeing on uh, Sunday in particular. So let's um, take people through first up uh, what the government has actually passed in Parliament before we get to some of the public health measures that they have uh, been, I guess, bungling to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yesterday, Monday, the 23rd of March is an extraordinary day, I think, that will go down in, in history for decades to come. Uh, we saw things that we haven't seen in this country for nearly a century, lines of people stretching uh, around the block in front of Centrelinks, uh, federal parliament meeting with many fewer parliamentarians than normal to pass an emergency economic aid package for the whole country, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people being thrown out of work at the stroke of noon um, as a whole bunch of businesses and non-essential services were closed by government mandate. Um, it really was an extraordinary uh, day and, and I think it underlines the gravity of the situation Australia finds itself in now. Uh, just to go to um, yeah, what's been going on um, both in, in federal politics and in parliament, yesterday they met and they passed the second of the Morrison stimulus packages. Well, they passed both of the Morrison stimulus packages at once. So the um, $16 billion first package that we spoke about last week, um, and they also uh, they also passed a, a follow-up package worth uh, around about $65 billion, 
with a whole bunch of extra stimulus money, particularly for small business, and some very dramatic increases to the welfare safety net. Um, so quite extraordinary scenes in federal parliament. I mean, remember, this is the coalition that has told us for a decade that Labor's 2008 stimulus was wasteful spending and that um, things like school halls and $900 payments to people were wasteful and unnecessary and profligate. All of a sudden, they're turning on a dime and enacting the largest peacetime government spending program uh, since 1945. So really quite extraordinary times in Australian politics and, and of course, in the economy. Indeed. And uh, there is some discussion around this approach that the coalition has taken um, particularly if we're looking at the job seeker allowance, that's what New Start is now called. Um, some people uh, have raised the fact that other countries around the world, including the UK, Norway, Denmark, um, have decided to provide in some cases up to 80% of people's wages so that they are retained in their current jobs and do not end up uh, moving to an unemployment benefit because once you've lost your job and you're unemployed, it's much harder to then regain employment. What are your thoughts on this um, other, I guess, alternative and the other alternatives that were and are open to the coalition in terms of trying to maintain people and keep them in employment as long as they possibly can? Yeah, that's right. So other countries like some of the Scandinavian countries, New Zealand and the United Kingdom have passed essentially a wage guarantee where they've put a floor under people's wages and the government will essentially pay them a percentage of what their previous wage would be. The Australian government, of course, hasn't done that. It's um, opted to um, up the rate of uh, a bunch of benefits, including job seeker allowance. Um, late last night, they also amended the legislation in Parliament to include students in that. So that was a, an important uh, amendment. Um, and they've increased the, the rate from a you know, the current incredibly low rate of about $550 a fortnight to more like $1,100 a fortnight. So they've effectively doubled what Job Search used to be, what New Start used to be. And that's obviously very welcome. Um, and that will put um, some kind of stimulus into the economy and give some kind of security to people who have been thrown out of work. But um, I think it's quite a different package to what we've seen overseas. It's not as big and it's not as immediate. One of the big problems about the Australian system, of course, is that you've still got to get through the Centrelink maze, the, the Centrelink bureaucracy. And um, we saw yesterday that MyGov, the much maligned Australian government website, crashed actually under the strain of people all trying to log on and lodge their claims. And we had the bizarre scene of the responsible minister, Stuart Robert, claiming that there'd been a denial of service attack against the government. Of course, there had not been. It was simply uh, so many people trying to log on at once. I mean, these are extraordinary times. Economically, the damage that's being done at the moment is really the worst since the 1930s. Um, we've seen whole industries close, not just businesses close, but entire industries have to close effectively within a week. Um, some people think unemployment could go to 15% to 20%. These are depression-level unemployment figures. 
So Australia already looks very different to what it looked like in January. And this is just the beginning, of course, of this pandemic crisis. Yes, and it doesn't count uh, the underemployment levels, which will apply to areas like uh, people who are casuals and uh, also sole traders, people who may have a tiny amount of work left or have reduced number of shifts um, and are now particularly struggling. And that's been certainly the case in the retail sector because um, some parts of retail and hospitality are able to be left open and are considered essential and others are um, substantially reduced and cafes and restaurants, for example, being takeaway only. So we're seeing uh, huge changes in the way people are doing business. Um, It has been reported that up to one to two million people will lose their jobs in the coming months. Um, And that's not a long-term figure, that's a short-term figure. What do you think um, the government needs to be thinking about in regards to such a substantial number of Australians losing their jobs who, as you said, have been uh, lining up outside of Centrelink offices yesterday and putting their health at risk by doing so? Uh, It's a stressful time for everyone and it's also stressful for the people working at Centrelink um, on the call lines as well. I know a number of them are quite upset um, what are we to do? And also, what are we to do? Because in terms of the job seeker payment, the additional um, element, the coronavirus supplementary payment, will only be paid in about five weeks' time. So people do have to wait a substantial time to receive that extra amount of money. Yeah, that's exactly right, Amy. Uh, the government has chosen in its wisdom to root everyone through the existing welfare safety net which has got a lot of problems with it, as we've talked about on this show many times. Um, The government has systematically underfunded welfare services, particularly Centrelink, and the department, which is now called Services Australia in a kind of Orwellian flourish. Um, Thousands of full-time staff have been laid off from that agency over the last five, six years. Um, So they don't have the capacity to deal with this level Um, of people coming through the system. So they've got to rapidly ramp that up. That's clear. Um, And and you're right, the the payments won't come through for more than a month. So there's going to be real hardship from a lot of people, particularly people who were already living paycheck to paycheck. Um, That's all all gone now for a lot of people. So, you know, we we are going to see, I think, um, you know, really scary scenes start to develop. I think we're going to have to see food kitchens and um, provision of, of basic um, services, food and shelter to people um, because they're not going to be able to provide it for themselves. Um, and, of course, we should point out that the reason that all of this is happening is because of the dangerously deteriorating situation with COVID-19. So just overnight we had another couple of hundred cases announced by the various state health departments. Australia's um, total for number of cases for COVID-19 looks like it'll smash through 2,000 today. Um, And as we know from these cases and from the development of of the coronavirus illness, these are backward-looking statistics. So the people who are getting tested and diagnosed now probably contracted this illness five to 10 days ago. So who knows what the actual amount of COVID-19 circulating in the Australian community is right now. It's probably quite a lot. Um, and so this this problem is getting worse, not better. Um, we are starting to see significant numbers of presentations to hospitals and emergency departments. 
Um, and, you know, I think the worst is fundamentally yet to come. We're not flattening the curve. In fact, the curve is shooting upwards. So it's it's pretty concerning. Yes, and up until uh, now, the testing criteria has still been fairly narrow and it had been in regard to people who had overseas travel. In predominantly, that was what we were looking at and community transmission, although it existed, was not wide. Excuse me, widespread. Um, we did see an example, another example of a politician testing positive to coronavirus but being asymptomatic, and that is Senator Rex Patrick, who announced his result last night. It does uh, suggest to people, and it's not a new idea, it's certainly something that Dr. Norman Swan and other doctors have mentioned, that we aren't actually capturing those people who are either asymptomatic or so mild that people may not realise they're actually infected. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we haven't on the whole tested a lot of the general community and that's by design because we've got a limited number of tests and we need to direct the testing to the most important cases. Um, I spoke to an emergency doctor uh, yesterday, um, sorry, on Sunday, um, someone who works in the the Melbourne, um, one of the Melbourne public hospitals um, and she told me that, um, that they are testing pretty much anyone who walks through the door with respiratory issues. So um, I think it's fair to say that um, the testing is not quite as uh, restricted as people think it is um, and that, that, that we, are, we are probably um, not having as much of a hidden problem as, as has been the case in the United States or Italy. But it's also the case that we're largely confining testing to people who've been contact traced to known cases or to people who um, present with symptoms who've come from overseas. So that means that we're not testing widely in the community and we don't truly know what the level of COVID in the general community is. And so this has also played into discussions around uh, school closures and that's been one of the hottest topics of the week, the last week certainly, and even probably two weeks. And a lot of parents have been confused and quite anxious about the conflicting messages they've been receiving from the federal government, um, the chief medical officer and also from the state governments. And we finally saw on the weekend uh, a, a point of divergence between the federal and state governments. Can you explain what was happening politically um, and also then in practice over the weekend between the federal government who were holding their ground on keeping schools open and the state governments of uh, New South Wales, ACT and Victoria who have moved and um, done something different? Yeah, so basically over the weekend we saw a, a bit of a struggle between the federal government and particularly New South Wales and Victoria, um, who wanted to move harder and faster on COVID restrictions than the national government appeared to want to move. Um, so um, on Sunday, for example, um, Daniel Andrews, the Victorian, president, pre <laughs> Victorian Premier, put out a press release saying, um, we're going to close the schools on Tuesday um, and we're going to introduce a whole bunch of lockdown restrictions now, that had not been the advice coming from the federal government under Scott Morrison and the chief medical officer, Brendan Murphy. So they then went into a marathon late night Sunday meeting in the so-called National Cabinet. This is the cabinet that Morrison has formed with uh, the federal government and all of the state premiers. And they emerged from that meeting with a kind of compromised position, which was that the Victorian schools would close, but that um, there would not be a general closure of schools across Australia 
and there would be a more limited series of lockdown measures. So some industries would close, but others would stay open. Um, and there were a rolling series of media conferences from the Prime Minister on Sunday afternoon and into Sunday night. So it was extremely confused. And there were a lot of parents who didn't know where the school would be open or school would be closed. And there were a lot of workers and business owners who didn't know whether their businesses would be open or would be closed. Um, and, and I think that really shows just um, how the government's messaging has been ragged and inconsistent throughout this crisis, really. There's been a lot of criticism of Morrison's approach and, in fact, the, just the inability of people to get their messages consistent and their their ideas, you know, all running in the same direction. You know, we've had um, a lot of debate about whether schools should be closed or shouldn't be closed. Um, there's a lively expert debate within the expert epidemiological community about whether Australia is doing enough and whether Brennan Murphy, the chief medical officer, realises the gravity of the situation. And it seems as though Australia is going to be dragged relatively late towards a full lockdown that will happen perhaps in the next week or so. Indeed. And uh, one thing that has also arisen, and it's part of our um, democratic business and way of doing democracy, is that uh, the Australian Parliament, after yesterday's sitting, is now only scheduled to next sit on Tuesday the 11th of August. Now, that's pretty unprecedented in an extreme time like we are facing right now, which is that things are changing every few hours and days, let alone every week. Um, some people have criticised this move that uh, others, for example, in New Zealand have uh, decided and had an idea of having a virtual parliament. There are certainly modern ways to uh, actually enact the things that could get around getting all of our parliamentarians or even half of them to fly up to Canberra, obviously given the importance of physical distancing. What are your thoughts on that and the fact that we are essentially seeing our parliament shut down for five months? Yeah, well, it was quite an extraordinary adjournment yesterday at the conclusion of the sitting to pass these stimulus measures. The government then put out a schedule saying that, you're right, the next time parliament would sit would be the 11th of August. Now, that's an extraordinary decision, I think, by the government, because we're going to need to pass new laws during this crisis, and we're going to need to amend other laws. Um, and we saw that, in fact, last night with um, the minor parties and Labor getting together to amend the stimulus package to include students in these stimulus payments. Before that, um, the students weren't going to get the COVID supplement of $550 a fortnight. So the idea that there's going to be no business for the parliament to do over the next four or five months, I think is madness. Um, there is some provision for parliament to be recalled if necessary, and I expect it will be recalled. Um, and there is some potential for it to sit digitally or electronically. Maybe we can have a, a Zoom parliament the way everyone's <laughs> having Zoom meetings. That's There's nothing constitutional that would stop that. That's really just a, an aspect of the Parliament's standing orders, which can be modified. Exactly. And uh, it is important to note that even during wartime, Parliament still met. Uh, one of the other criticisms that ties into this is the fact that Labor has essentially been left out of the tent. It is not part of the National Cabinet and it hasn't really been brought in to be part of a shared decision-making process. Uh, and it still is quite um, combative. So, 
What is your thought on that kind of approach and the fact that if Parliament isn't sitting for five months, how does the opposition provide effective advocacy and opposition um, and also perhaps be constructive uh, when the government isn't really seeking their input? It's a tricky one. Um, the, the government has decided to press ahead with its so-called national cabinet, which includes the state premiers, but doesn't include the federal opposition. So that means that it's not like a wartime cabinet where we've seen, for example, in World War II, the government included actually members from both parties um, and, and was a kind of unity cabinet. Um, so it's not like that this time. Um, and, you know, I think the, the problem here is one not so much of uh, a democratic debate. The problem here, I think, is of decision-making. Actually, the government badly needs some more talent on its front benches, as we saw with the debacle yesterday with Centrelink and Stuart Robert. Um, Labor has some talented front benches. I, it would be really good, I think, if some of that talent could be put to work to try and help with Australia's crisis. Uh, but, of course, Scott Morrison's a deeply partisan politician and he won't be moving to give the opposition any break at all. Exactly. Now, let's also talk about uh, businesses. That is a substantial part of this package that we've seen in the, in the past week, That the larger stimulus package, and it's focused more on small to medium-sized business. And the federal government had been criticised for effectively um, providing support to uh, the airline industry over and above other business sectors and types of businesses. We've now seen some of that support extended to them in the sense of providing um, loans and underwriting, 50% of loans, providing a certain amount um, of support, financial support for different businesses to pay wages. Where are we at uh, in terms of how businesses are being supported by the government and is it enough at the moment? No, it's not enough, unfortunately. It's a huge amount of money. I mean, it's a massive amount of money, but the problem is the downturn is so sudden and so deep. So when you're falling off a cliff, uh, you really need to put all of your energies into finding a parachute. And the question here is whether the parachute's going to work. Um, I'm worried that it won't work. Uh, the government has mainly directed the stimulus towards business, and there's uh, a lot of help for business, particularly businesses under 50 million. So they're going to get cash flow. Um, they're going to get some a lot of tax back immediately um, or over the next couple of months. Um, they're also going to get um, a, uh, a bunch of access to low-interest loans um, that will be underwritten by the government and the Reserve Bank. So the government is pouring a lot of help into small to medium businesses. But the problem is that it's not probably going to be enough to keep those workers on. You know, the, the, it sort of maxes out at $100,000 for eligible small to medium-sized businesses. Now, for a lot of businesses, that's only a month or two of turnover. That's not going to be enough if their business has effectively gone to zero, which is what's happening when you're looking at hospitality, um, some aspects of retail, transport, culture. Some of these industries have essentially shut down. So, um, you know, withholding tax and low interest loans, they'll help, but I don't think they're going to stop those businesses from laying off workers and many of them will still close. Uh, it's just mathematics that, you know, unless you can actually backstop all the losses or at least keep these businesses afloat in a meaningful sense, maybe for six to 12 months, 
then it's just really hard for me to see how this is going to be enough to stop the crisis. And where the government hasn't spent any money really is in households. So it hasn't spent money outside of the welfare system. Yes, there's the, the COVID supplement for people going on to Centrelink, but there's nothing at all for ordinary workers. Uh, there's nothing at all for um, ordinary households in the form of a stimulus payment. Now, that's the quickest and most effective way to get money into the economy and we're not doing it. So I expect this economic crisis to get worse. Yes, and it certainly might uh, disproportionately affect sole traders and contractors who are their own employers and, uh, as you say, are not receiving any benefits at the moment. Uh, yes, there there is some provision for sole traders who've lost uh, a significant amount of their income to be able to access the, the COVID supplement um, through Centrelink. So there is some assistance for sole traders through the welfare system. Um, but again, you know, that throws them back onto the Centrelink bureaucracy. And as we saw yesterday with the website crashing and the huge queues outside the Centrelinks, it's going to be a creaking bureaucracy that's going to take weeks and probably months for some of those payments to flow through the system. We all know just how bad Centrelink is to deal with. Um, and in fact, you know, that, that could become a crisis very quickly, I think, because the government has deeply underfunded Centrelink and the welfare system, and um, now it's going to dump a massive amount of demand onto it. Um, it may well buckle and break. Highly likely, uh, I would say, based on yesterday's issues that we saw. Um, another element to this is that the state government in Victoria has decided to refund payroll tax um, and they are doing, I guess, what they can on their side to also provide some relief to businesses. Yeah, um, there's a range of state-based uh, stimulus packages. So a lot of the state governments are doing smaller stimulus packages that look to try and get some refunds into the pockets of small business, and that's great too. Um, but again, you know, it's it's a case of, um, you know, you're standing in front of a fire hose here, and, and that's the, the big problem. Uh, the, the, the scale of the economic downturn really is sort of hard to get your head around. Um, you might have seen some graphs coming out of the United States where this week something like two and a half million people claimed job benefits this this week. Um, so that's the largest number of people to have claimed unemployment benefits since the 1930s. So that's the kind of level of economic depression that we're looking at. And um, a few payments of payroll tax here or withholding tax there, uh, a low interest loan here or there, this is not going to cut it. No, one of the uh, innovative parts of the policy announcements from the state government of Victoria was a Working for Victoria fund, which would see some displaced workers eligible to apply for different types of work uh, under the state government. And that was, I guess, in a way to get people who were out of work into doing things that the Victorian gover government needs to be done you know, quite urgently. Yep. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that the government could could be doing. And, and I think we're going to see, I think, a rapid socialisation of the economy, ironically, because uh, the state and federal governments will quite quickly become the employers of last resort. Um, and they need to step up, actually, and take advantage of what are effectively 0% interest on government bonds and borrow lots of money to spend in the economy. Now, there's lots of things that need to be done in our economy anyway. They, they would need to be done whether we were in a depression or not. Things like 
building affordable housing for ordinary people, things like expanding our schools, uh, building hospitals, I think will be pretty important in the current environment. Um, so there's a bunch of infrastructure projects that could go ahead. There's maintenance that needs to be done. There's actually a lot of stuff that we could be getting on with if we thought constructively about this crisis and what we could do uh, now to, to, to fix up some of the problems that would be a problem no matter whether there was a depression or not. And what we can do is take advantage of effectively free money, which is what the government's getting now in terms of its, its bond borrowing, to do some of the things that need to be done. And Ben, just finally, in terms of um, the healthcare system, which is obviously one of the most important components uh, in this, and also the equipment that they require to be able to operate, particularly personal protective equipment, which is shorthand uh, called PPE, this is something which multiple uh, doctors have highlighted on Twitter to say that there is a major shortage, not just GPs, but now also doctors in hospitals saying they've been told to ration their PPE. And this is one key and vital way that doctors and nurses can protect themselves from getting infected with COVID-19 if they are treating patients who have it or are suspected to have it. What is uh, the state and federal government's role in providing adequate PPE and also things like ventilators and are they stepping up? Well, this is one of those problems of healthcare economics, right, which is that for most of the time in normal conditions, our health system runs at something like 90% to 100% of capacity. We don't have a lot of this gear sitting around in stockpile. It's very expensive and in the ordinary run of things, in a non-crisis situation, you don't want to be spending tens of millions of dollars stockpiling masks and ventilators that you're not using. So um, the thing about a pandemic is that it rapidly surges over the capacity of a health system to cope with it. And that's exactly what we're seeing with ventilators, with personal protective equipment, with ICU beds, the lot really. Now, Again, this is an issue where the government's going to have to intervene in the market. It's going to have to intervene in the supply chain. And a little bit like a wartime economy, it's going to have to direct industry uh, to produce certain products and to um, transition its production away from things that were you know, effective for a non-crisis economy to things that we need right now. Um, but that's going to take time. You know, You can't just magic up a mask factory. You can't just create ventilators out of thin air. Um, they've got a supply chain in turn. Uh, and so it's it's a complex system. It's going to take months to ramp up the production of this gear. In the meantime, yes, health workers are now rationing PPE, particularly at regional hospitals. That's deeply concerning because we've seen in Italy and China that health workers are the front line and that many of them get infected and some of them tragically die while treating this pandemic. So it's deadly serious. It couldn't be more serious. Uh, and I think, once again, it's shown that the federal government has been caught short on its preparedness. Um, so many of the things that the government has told us over the last decade have turned out to be basically false during this crisis. They told us we had strong borders, but it turns out we've been letting hundreds and hundreds of people with a pandemic disease through our borders every day, um, as we saw with the Ruby Princess debacle in Sydney, the cruise liner that let 2,700 people off the ship and into the community with no checks at all. 
Um, they told us that the the strong economy was because the government had this, the the budget in balance. Well, that's turned out to be false as well. The government's going to have to go into a massive deficit, hundreds of billions of dollars of deficit. So this crisis is rewriting all of the old truths that we thought were consistent about politics, economics, the way we do business. And we're going to emerge out of this crisis, I think, of a very different society to the one we went in with. Yes, Ben, there's much more um, to, to come, obviously, and some major changes that will be uh, hopefully in some positive ways permanent. We might actually see some more secure employment than um, a highly casualised workforce and uh, many other issues that have become a modern blight on Australian society. Thanks for yeah, your time. Yeah, I mean, just on that, I mean, I've, I've yeah. now seen some people calling for an end to casual employment as an entire category. And I think wouldn't that be great if that was mm. one outcome of this of this crisis that we recognised as a society that casual employment is simply not a civilised way to employ human beings. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Ben, thanks for your time today. I hope you take care and, uh, yeah, best luck. Thanks, Amy. Cheers for that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now I welcome Christina, who joins me over Skype from America, I believe, somewhere just outside of Boston. Hi there, Christina. Hey, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Well, you know... (laughs) (laughs) time of the pandemic and all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As best as you can. Right. And um, just before we get into your book, which is um, fascinating, and I'm sure it's going to transport us to another place, which is what we need, I think, right now um, in this pandemic, as well as obviously being across things and making sure we're taking the right decisions. Um, But from your perspective, it's been interesting watching what's been happening over in America and um, even seeing Harvard University uh, close its physical campus uh, over a week ago and um, they had their first case and almost immediately after that closed down the campus. How has your experience been? And I'm aware that you're editor of the Harvard Review over there as well. Right. So we started working remotely um, last week. Uh, My colleague and I went in on a day Uh, the Monday of last week after everybody had already left and made our way. We couldn't get into our building, so we had to go through the tunnels underneath the buildings in order to go from Widener Library to Lamont, where our office is, to pick up a few things. And it was spooky and strange because the building was empty and it was dark and, uh, (laughs) you know, it was just really weird. But so it's, I mean, I, I applaud Harvard and the other universities like Stanford and Princeton and many other universities that made an early decision to, um, to send everybody home. Yes, and and, uh, to get everybody working, all the staff to get them working from home. So that was really good. It is good and it's important to, as many of the health um, professionals have said, be ahead of the curve because it should look like uh, you're being extra cautious and in some cases an overreaction if you are, are doing the right thing in a pandemic. Absolutely. Absolutely. The universities have been ahead of the curve mostly um, and, you know, we're just sort of watching everybody else kind of wrap their heads around it now. 
Yeah, and um, certainly from our perspective, we're seeing Donald Trump give his uh, daily press conferences and that is another disturbing subject that I won't draw you into because I know it might be a little bit um, distressing for any American having to go through that a second time. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> now, Christina, um, I'm aware that you have a dual citizenship of Australia and America, and you also have a, a personal connection to this topic that is your book and Polynesia and the people who make up um, the Polynesian islands. And uh, it certainly is a very vast area that we're looking at um, in the global sense, in a geographic sense. Uh, Could you share with us, first of all, what that personal connection is and how that moved you to um, look at this in greater depth? Sure. Um, So I'm married to um, um, a man from New Zealand. He is Maori and um, he is from, uh, he is a member of the Ngāpuhi tribe, Ngātirehi Ahapu. And he's from the north of New Zealand, and I met him a really long time ago. We've been married for 30 years, I think, <clears throat> and uh, we have three children. And um, my wrote a, my first book was really about trying to, you know, to understand what a cross-cultural marriage was like and also to see that in the context of the historical relationship between our two peoples. And so that's the contact history, really, of New Zealand and the colonial history of New Zealand. And so that's been a longstanding interest of mine. Um, You know, when I was in Australia, that was what I was really working on and what I was interested in. And I've continued to work on it, even though I live really, really far away from the Pacific and I have for the last 20 years. And so, you know, I don't I often feel like I'm not getting much traction in America because on my side of the country anyway, people don't really you know, they just don't really get it. They don't really know what's out there. (laughs) Um, But, but it is really important to me. It's really been my life's work, basically, to try and understand um, what Polynesia is, the history of Polynesia, what the cultural, what the relationships are between, you know, Pakeha and Maori and so forth. And yeah, That's a really great um, introduction and no doubt that your personal connection um, would be, I guess, facilitating on a daily basis a kind of cross-cultural exchange and you, I guess, feeling potentially part of the, the Polynesian culture in a way? Sort of. I mean, I feel like an outsider. I mean, I am very definitely an outsider in Polynesia. I actually wrote a piece about this not too long ago. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm coughing. I do not have uh, the virus, <laughs> but I'm just have a little frog in my throat. I wrote a piece recently that was about, you know, when we go to Polynesia, I, I sort of stay behind my husband because, you know, he's very identifiably Polynesian and wherever he goes, everybody recognizes him as a Polynesian, although in Tahiti, they think he's Tahitian and in Tonga, they think he's Tongan. And, you know, like people can't tell exactly where he's from until he opens his mouth. Um, but, uh, I, you know, travel with him by staying, by kind of walking behind him because he is the ambassador, you know, and I just sort of observe what's going on, but he's, he's been a huge part of my, I don't know, I guess partly my research, (laughs) but also just my, you know, just helping me understand different kinds of things. And he tells me stuff all the time. That's really great. That does sound like it's particularly helpful and fantastic when you're going traveling in these areas. And the beginning of your book uh, does share one of those stories where you talk about um, your husband really 
being one of those icebreakers, I guess. And when people see him, um, they're saying things like, hey, brother, how's it going? Uh, hey, brother, where are you from? Hey, brother, do you need something? And the um, amazing generosity that uh, exists for people and from people in Polynesia with each other and um, some of the lovely things that people offered to you and provided you with when you were on your travels in Hawaii. Yeah, in Hawaii and in Tonga, um, in in all kinds of places. I mean, people were incredibly generous to us. We had only the most uh, tenuous of connections with pe- with various people. We would know one in one case, it was my niece's colleague's cousin or something like that. I mean, it was really remote, and I had never even met the woman who was the connection. And this guy met us at the airport in Tonga. He loaned us his car. I mean, you know, it was just uh, spectacular, just kind of really amazing warmth and generosity and a feeling of, of, I mean, it's really for me, what I felt about it was there's a feeling of kinship. Mm -hmm. I could sort of perceive that feeling of kinship. And that was the thing that was sort of underlying my, my inquiry into this, this sense that these people um, on all these islands are related and pretty darn closely, you know, just wasn't that long ago in terms of um, human history when they sort of made it out into the Pacific and when they split apart group to group. So it was, uh, yeah. Indeed. And you highlight the fact that um, obviously this is a massive uh, geographic area and expanse um, and it is, uh, you know, obviously these tiny little islands, some of which are so small that they wouldn't be um, observable on a two-scale map. Uh, And the, I guess, wondrous idea and um, circumstance that Polynesians found themselves in, that they were um, so fantastically mobile and able to colonise and uh, settle in every habitable island in such a huge expanse. Um, In terms of that uh, element in the story, I mean, we'll get to how and why that happened, but um, what kind of, what did that mean for you when you've kind of understood, I guess, the the geographic size and the um, expanse that is the Polynesian Triangle? And maybe for those who are listening, you could share with us what that does encompass. Right, exactly. So the Polynesian Triangle is the triangle that the, the, the north northernmost point is Hawaii, and then New Zealand in the sort of bottom left-hand corner, if you were looking at a map, and then Easter Island in the bottom right. So it's a big triangle. It's right in the middle of the Pacific. Tahiti is pretty much the center point. Um, it's 10 million square miles. And, um, you know, my my sort of way of making this real was to think about, well, if you got on an airplane and you flew from Hawaii to New Zealand, it would be nine hours. And then it would be nine hours from New Zealand to Easter Island and nine hours from Easter Island back to Hawaii. I mean, it's just a huge, huge, huge area. And there's really nothing in it except water and some islands, not very many islands inside there. So it's just an enormous area. Um, and what was the other thing you wanted to ask me? I think that's that's the main point at this point. Let's um, go into some of the Polynesian islands uh, and also how, I guess, these people, the Polynesian people, managed to settle in an inner sea, um, in, in islands within a sea, the Pacific Ocean, that was particularly uh, tumultuous in terms of the weather, uh, the wind, the waves, and it was so, I guess, inhospitable that uh, Europeans did did not um, become the first to to find and settle these islands. It was the Polynesians. Why and how did that happen? 
Well, I'm not sure that it was because it was so inhospitable. The, uh, Europeans didn't know the Pacific was there until the beginning of the 16th century. Like they just didn't know it was there. Um, they had once they had to cross the Atlantic first, basically, um, or you know they'd have had to go the other way. So which they might have recognized that there was something you know east of you know east of China. But basically, the understanding comes when they go across the Atlantic to the Americas, and then they go across the Americas and they recognize that there's water on the other side. So. You know, it's Magellan who who is the first to sail across in the early 1500s. And, you know, there are all kinds of difficulties. The principal difficulty is not the sort of tempestuousness of it, all the getting around the horn is really hard. But the real problem is just distance. You know, it's like the tyranny of distance, right? It's the classic Australian thing. It is just so big and it is so far away from everything. So you get out into the middle of it and there's just you're just very, very far away from anything. So um, Europeans had a particularly hard time uh, navigating it. They didn't they took they took hundreds of years to understand how big it was, how how where the islands were in it, how to cross against the um you know, there were only certain pathways that they could take given because of the winds and so on. So it really was a remarkable, you know, just a, just just a remarkable thing to be able to navigate in this really enormous space. So that's a big piece of it. And then, you know, the other thing that kind of amazed Europeans was that Polynesians had done this without many of the technologies that we had. For example, they didn't have writing. So they didn't have charts. They didn't have maps. They didn't have directions that were written. They were all oral. They had them in their heads. They didn't have any metal. They didn't have compasses. You know, they didn't have a lot of the tools that we used when we went across. So so then the question is sort of how did they do it? And that was just, you know, that's been a long, long question, <laughs> a <Yes>. difficult question. <laughs> and you talk about uh, Magellan's trips and voyages uh, across the Pacific, and um, they did sound, you know, pretty dramatic at times. And uh, the fact that uh, there was obviously a lot of wind, but also that uh, because it was such a long vo voyage and, as you say, a large expanse to cover, um, that most of the uh, crew and the ships did not uh, end up making the return. And it was obviously a, a hugely risky thing to actually um, take on. Yeah, I think it was risky for everybody. I think um, I think it was probably risky for Polynesian navigators. You know, it's a big ocean. It can be very rough. Um, it can be difficult. In you know, there are storms. It's it's um, there are certain seasons for voyaging. If you were a Polynesian, you probably would not have voyaged during certain seasons. That was also to some extent true of the Europeans. Um, you know, they wouldn't try to round the horn in the winter, for example, uh, southern hemispheric winter. Um, so yeah, there are all kinds of uh, of, of sort of difficulties, um, and a lot of the early Europeans, uh, you know, navigators who went across had difficulty in various different ways. They they ran aground, they ran out of food, they they had encounters with people who lived on the islands. Sometimes people died. You know, it was it was rugged. <laughs> There's no question about that. And it went on for hundreds of years. You know, this kind of trying to figure out what was out there. Um, yeah, indeed. And you do recount um, through some of the Europeans who had written uh, diary entries and had taken notes of their trip, um, some of the first encounters between uh, Magellan and the Polynesians. And there was one example um, around uh, the fact that a whole group of um, Polynesians having about three to 10 people in each canoe had um, gone out in their canoes to the ship that the Europeans had. And there was obviously um, there, 
initially seemed quite friendly, but then it turned to uh, not be so friendly. Yeah, that, that wouldn't have been Magellan because he never really encountered any Polynesians and he's just the first. But many of the subsequent voyagers, especially or the navigators, the, the, the you know, the British uh, or the British and the French in particular in the 18th century, they had all kinds of encounters with Polynesian people and then also with other people further in the islands to the west that were, were very fraught. I mean, um, there are all, I mean, they're very complicated. They're not just, they're not, they were tense and sometimes they were violent. And then sometimes they would flip quite quickly and go from being, uh, sort of tense and violent to being, uh, tense and sort of maybe more productive where there'd be trade and people would exchange food and, uh, bits of fabric and maybe tools and I don't know, different kinds of things. So those early interactions are very, they're very, I've been fascinated by them for years because we have very little in the way of, we have these records of them that are sort of sparse in a way. They don't tell you everything you want to know about them. There's just a lot, you know, you wish you could really go back and see. But those, those interactions were very interesting. You had two people very different from one another encountering each other, sometimes for the first time or, you know, maybe the second time or third. And, and those are just really, really interesting events mm. for me. I'm thinking in particular of the 1595 episode where um, the Spaniard Mendana uh, met the Marqueses and had that uh, little, I guess, discussion at the beginning, but then there was um, some tension and also shots fired and uh, Polynesians were shot um, and, and obviously that did create some tension. And, and of course, it's interesting that there is, uh, as you you've highlighted a bias in the sense that we are reliant in many regards on uh, a European perspective and a European lens um, as opposed to the Polynesians. From your perspective when you were researching this, how did you balance and manage that challenge? And obviously from an Australian perspective, we're um, fortunate to have a great uh, rich oral tradition with our um, Aboriginal First Peoples. Uh, Was there a similar uh, rich oral tradition uh, with many Polynesians? Yes, there is. And it's very interesting that um, it is um, quite well documented in a number of different places. It's very well documented in New Zealand. It's well documented in Hawaii. It's pretty well documented in, um, in, in it's remembered probably better in some of the other parts in the Western Polynesia where there's been a little bit less colonial interference or maybe a little bit, I don't know, maybe that's not quite fair, but you know, um, there, there's definitely a lot of oral tradition. It's, um, I write about the oral traditions quite a lot in the book because I found them really fascinating in part because again, you know, um, they're sort of complicated because if you think about it, so how does it work? You have these, these say these myths or these legends or so forth that are written down probably in the beginning of the 19th century or sometime in the 19th century by a missionary, usually sometimes by a colonial official, who, you know, keeps things, you know, leaves some things out and is very interested in certain things. So they kind of warping the shape of it as they write it down. Sometimes they document it in the original language. Sometimes they don't. In any case, they do a translation, which may or may not be really accurate, you know, and then the things get re- get printed for the for sort of a readership back in England and they reshape them again. And so, you know, there's just like layer after layer after layer of kind of alteration to these stories. And yet there's all this other stuff in them, which goes back, you know, in a sense, thousands of years, the way an oral tradition can, um, certainly hundreds of years. 
And um, so, yeah, so they're very layered. They're very complicated. They're very fascinating. Um, I have huge piles in my office of books of of these, you know, sort of uh, transcriptions, you know, of these tales. And they're not even tales sometimes. They're just fragments. And I find them very mysterious and wonderful. So I, I, I worked with them a lot. I tried a lot to think a lot about what they could tell me and also what they couldn't tell me. Um, trying not to be too kind of naive about what was coming through in those stories. I think sometimes people are a little um, simple in the way that they think about what's there. Indeed. Um, and let's uh, touch on New Zealand which um, and Easter Island, which you write about in one of your chapters. I know it's certainly of interest to many of us in Australia, given our um, closeness to New Zealand, but also uh, given that you've said your uh, husband is Maori, it must have also been particularly pertinent uh, for your own family. Yeah, the New Zealand part, I mean, I had, I sort of knew more about New Zealand's history um, than I did about some other parts of the Pacific. I'd spent more time there. Um, so yeah, so, so the New Zealand piece of the story is pretty, I suppose, it's, New Zealand figures fairly prominently. It's also the last of the Polynesian um, uh, clusters, you know, island groups to have been settled. So it's kind of an interesting case because it's, it's really recent. I mean, you know, maybe 800 years or 900 years ago, something like that, that the people, the, and nobody had ever been there until, until the, the, the Maori arrived. So it's just an amazing kind of, you know, piece of history. And Easter Island is, of course, everybody's, you know, everybody knows how the Easter Island is fantastically interesting. Um, you know, it's funny think I was, but I was going to be, I should have been leaving for Easter Island on this coming Saturday. Um, Obviously, I'm not going, <laughs> which is really too bad. Yeah, it but, is. But, yeah. Well, but, but Easter Island is 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 also really fascinating because it's incredibly isolated and it's also really small and does very you know resource poor. So it's a hard place to live. I mean, I think one of the things that people kind of don't get sometimes they think, oh, you know, Polynesia, like they think about Tahiti or something or, or Hawaii, palm trees, white beaches, you know, mountains. But a lot of islands are difficult to live on They're They're ecologically kind of difficult. They're deprived in many ways. They don't have very they might not have very rich soils. If you're on an atoll, you have no soil at all. No land animals. You know, they're tough places to live. And yet that was the other thing that's amazing to me about Polynesian expansion is that they they managed to occupy, to colonize these really challenging environments and to sort of successfully master them, which I think is kind of fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. Um, and it's interesting how you've written that some of them are formed and that, they're, as you said, um, I guess the foundations, the, the land mass does it is made of different materials and it is formed in different ways, including um, many people would be aware of things like uh, volcanoes and volcanic eruptions being part of the landscape in these or many of these islands. Right. There haven't been any active volcanoes in th this part of the Pacific for, you know, I don't know, millions of years, I think. So there haven't, well, Hawaii, I mean, with the obvious exception yes. of Hawaii. Um, but but the, the, the basic islands, uh, again, the basic idea is that you have a hot spot and you have some, you have a series of a uh, little chain of, of volcanic islands with little mountains, you know, and then around them a reef. And some, and then as the island subsides and the mountain wears down, the coral reef can become just the island itself. So that's what an atoll is. And the whole Tuamotu archipelago, which is lies just east of Tahiti, is in fact all coral like that. And those are, those are challenging. And 
And there are some other interesting differences. New Zealand is, again, quite different because it's continental and it's huge by comparison and it's cold. And then, you know, you get down to the Chatham Islands and they're just cold, cold, cold by comparison to these other places. So that's another thing that's amazing is you have basically this one cultural group, which expands across both this enormous region and into a whole series of different kind of environments, um, warmer, colder, you know, more or less uh, rich, more or less ecologically sort of diverse. So, again, kind of another cool dimension to the story. Yeah, and by continental, um, we should maybe mention that because it is a really fascinating part of the very ancient history, which is the southern supercontinent of Gondwana, which also included Africa, South America, Antarctica, and Australia, as well as the Indian subcontinent. So this is um, something which in New Zealand, as you said, is continental. It was part of this massive um, supercontinent of Gondwana. And then, of course, uh, it subsequently broke up. Right, right. And and so as a consequence of having been part of, uh, you know, old Gondwana, it has certain kinds of plants, for example, um, and that, that you wouldn't find on other on the islands, the, the, the volcanic islands, which are much more recent and also only have what could kind of fly there, you know, either a bird could bring it as the seeds in its gut or the stuff could blow there or whatever. But I mean, it, it takes a long time for those volcanic islands to develop the kind of flora, kind of d- diverse flora, which, which, which New Zealand already had this, like Australia, this very interesting um, Gondwanan, you know, stuff, plants, animals, whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, I guess, the, the way that you approached this book, um, I found it really interesting that there were there were so many stories interwoven through it and it wasn't um, necessarily a, a typical nonfiction book in the sense that it was laden with kind of dry facts. It was certainly quite literary and it was taking people um, on a, a bit of a narrative journey and to understand not just the natural elements, of course, but as the title alludes to the people of Polynesia. Um, In terms of that approach that you've taken with this book, what do you think um, some of the benefits have been when putting together such a unique story such as uh, the people of Polynesia and what they um, did? Well, I think that, um, you know, for people who have liked the book, that the the part of what they have really liked, I think, is that it covers all of this kind of crazy stuff. I used to go around saying to people, you know, jokingly, let me tell you about the, you know, coral atoll formation. You know, let me tell you about, <laughs> let me tell you about this, this crazy Swede who went to Hawaii in the 1840s and passed, you know, cross paths with Herman Melville. Like, it's just got all of this stuff in it. And the miracle, I think, is that I could, that I, that I, that I did find a way to organize it so that it was, you know, it would, it didn't, doesn't seem like a random assortment of just weird, weird stories, you know, because really the way that I organized it was in terms of, it's very simple or it's organized very simply chronologically in terms of the question, you know, when somebody who from outside the Pacific first asks the question, who are these people? Because, you know, when, when the, when the Europeans arrive, the islands are all populated and the Europeans get there and they go, who are these people? And so that's the question. And then if you try to look at the answers to the questions, sort of sequentially starting, you know, starting in the 16th century and working your way up to the 19th century into the 20th century. And it turned out to not exactly to my surprise, but I hadn't foreseen this, that if you follow the question, 
chronologically like that, what ends up happening is that you see that different bodies of knowledge, which are available at that moment in history, are brought to bear upon the question. So, for example, in the 19th century, you get linguistics because people are kind of figuring linguistics out. And so they bring linguistics to bear on the question. If you get into the 20th century, you have archaeology because you radiocarbon dating is developed, you know, invented or discovered or whatever it is. And then you have you bring that to bear on the question. So, you know, it just organized itself <laughs> as it turned out. <laughs> I just told all the stories along the way, all the people who'd had ideas about it, all of their attempts to understand the question, all of their and, and just use the looked at the different tools that they used. And mm -hmm. it turned out that there were a lot of different tools. So. Indeed, yeah. Um, maybe we could touch on one of the fascinating and kind of really critical elements of the Polynesians and their ability to uh, to settle on these islands was their um, their expertise in navigation that was different from the Europeans and their approach, um, obviously being uh, having to be innovative and and not informed by a, a European approach. Right. So this was obviously a piece of the puzzle and nobody really paid too much attention to it until the end of the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, when a couple of anthropologists, well, an anthropologist and then a sailor started thinking about how you might try and answer the question, how did they do it? How did they do it? Not when, not where did they come from, not who were they, you know, who, but not who were they closely related to, but but how. And so the how, you know, the, the way that they approached the how was there's no way to go back and find, there's no evidence of that going back. Um, you can't, there's no documentation of that anywhere. So they decided that they would try and reenact the voyages. Various different people have had this idea. I mean, one of the very famous ones, of course, was Tor Heyerdahl, who set off on a raft from the coast of South America and drifted into the Tuamotus. That was the Contiki expedition, very famous. Anybody who's over a certain age knows that very, very well. Um, so that was one of them. But then there was a whole series of experimental voyages uh, from Hawaii, from the Polynesian Voyaging Society in the 1970s. And then since then, there have been a lot more. So that's a really big um, – that was just people trying to figure out how this was done. And so well, how was it done? <laughs> <laughs> what's, well, our best, what's our best understanding at the moment? Okay, so our best understanding is that there is a set of uh, what you might call tools or techniques, and one of them involves star star navigation. So you understand um, the sky very well for the region in which you're going to be traveling, and you understand which stars will rise at which points on the horizon. If you think of the if you think of the horizon as a flat circle around you, like a compass or whatever, then certain stars will reliably rise at a certain point on that on that compass, and then set on the opposite side. And so you, you know, you, you understand which stars those are going to be. Then you set a path knowing the path will be when this star A rises and then following that star B will rise in that same place. And then star C will rise in that place through the course of the night. So you follow that and that's your compass. Then you understand there's a lot of land finding, um, techniques which involve understanding kind of what the what what does the sky what does what do the clouds look like in the in proximity to land what do birds do in proximity to land how are wave um, refraction patterns altered by the presence of land and so on and so forth there's a lot of sophisticated knowledge there and then there are some other things too so there are sort of a, a bunch of techniques and tools um, some of which have been kind of reinvented some of which have been passed down from some micronesian navigators um, and some of which are still kind of mysterious. They're documented as having been used, but some people don't really know how they are, 
how they worked. Yes, and some of the, I guess, tools or methodologies within this STAR law, as in L-O-R-E, which you describe as being the foundation of non-instrumental navigation, are um, really important and some of, I guess, the main guiding tools or rules or frameworks that uh, the Polynesians were using, um, looking at STAR paths connecting one island to another, and uh, you highlight that about 10 stars a night were required at minimum to maintain a constant heading, although sometimes as few as five could be used. I mean, there are some of those examples that you provide which are quite awe-inspiring to think that um, there was just such uh, amazing innovation and creativity and a whole other way of doing things. I think, too, the way you have to think about this, you have to think about this, too, is that so so Mao Piailug, who was the master navigator from... um, from Satawal, who taught the Polynesian navigators, the, the Hawaiian navigators in the 1970s. He had been raised on the sea, you know, to think about it, to think about the sea this way from the time that he was a very tiny child. And he had been taught and he had practiced and so forth. And he could do things that other people couldn't really didn't, even the people he trained weren't really able to do. He, he could feel swell patterns, very complicated swell patterns on from the deck of a canoe, which was just a kind of, it was basically experience experience had taught him how to do it. And the same thing with the sky. You know, you have to think about somebody spending their whole life, you know, thinking about this, studying about this, practicing this, and their connection to what their their knowledge, their understanding of what the sky will look like, what the weather, you know, patterns are going to be like, what the stars are going to do, what the wind is going to do, what the clouds are going to do, what the birds are going to do. You know, it's like that just being really in it in a way that is different from, you know, going to school and learning about you know, how to make, how to do the tables, um, Mm. you know, for lunars and stuff like that. I mean, it's just a really, I'm not sure that one wants to be, you know, particularly say one is good and one is bad or anything like that. That's not really it or better or worse. It's not really like that. It's just like really different um, in terms of the, the, what it takes and to to do it and, and how you learn it, I think. Yes, it's that close connection with nature and a long observation, a careful observation and understanding of of the land that you're living in. And um, you do, you just mentioned their birds, and I was interested in that and the fact that birds were, um, you quote in the book, a navigator's best friend. How were birds utilised? So birds will do... Um most of the birds on islands will go out to fish in the morning and come back to roost at night. I mean, not all of them. Some of them will stay out at sea for a long time. So you have to know which birds you're looking at. But for certain birds, certain birds are very good. Um, uh, they're very good hallmarks or whatever you, you could, if you, if it's, if it's, if it's getting on for sunset and you see the birds, you're and you're close enough to an Island, but you can't see the Island, but you see these birds, they could be 30 or 40 miles out. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of disagreement about how far out they'll go. Um, but, and, and they're not, you know, they're not perfect. They, they'll do, they do some weird things sometimes, but basically they'll, you could see the birds heading back to the Island and you would know that there were, at a certain time of day, you would know that there was an Island there. So the people who are really good at this, you know, it would be hard to do if you were just a novice, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. but, um, and there's a story in the book about Nainoa Thompson, who's the, the Hawaiian, uh, navigator, the first Hawaiian navigator really. And, and how he makes a mistake with the birds because he doesn't really get it. He doesn't really know. And uh, Mao has to correct him. It's a story <laughs> I love. But... <laughs> well, maybe you could tell us that story. It sounds really fascinating. 
Well, it's sort of complicated. I mean, basically what it is is that he that they're they're making the trip in the Hokulea, which is the the canoe, the replica canoe that they built and they 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 launched it in 1976 for the bicentennial year, the United States bicentennial year, and they were going to go to Hawaii and back. And it wasn't on the first voyage, but on a, on on some subsequent voyages when Nainoa was actually being trained as or doing the navigation himself, and he was just coming into the Tuamotu, was just about to reach the the end of this long, you know, many day vo- twenty three week voyage, I think, and he was very anxious about it, and he thought that um, he saw the birds. Let's see how, how this works. He saw the birds coming out. Uh, at a certain time, and he thought that based on the direction the bird was going, that they had passed the island. They had overshot the mark. And so they needed to turn around. So he tells everybody, turn the canoe around, turn the canoe around. And Mao, who had never interfered, who was his master teacher, had never interfered with him. He interfered at that moment. He said, no, no, turn the canoe around. You're going the wrong way now. And they turned around. And it turned out that what happened was that the bird, it was nesting season and the bird had gone out twice. So instead of doing what the bird was supposed to be doing, it was doing the opposite of what it was supposed to be doing because it was bringing back food for its babies at the wrong time of day. And, you know, Mao knew that it was nesting season. He knew that the birds would do that nesting season, but Nainoa didn't know that. So he just misinterpreted the signal completely, like Hmm. completely 180 degrees. So yeah, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult kind of thing. It's not like you can just master these little bits of knowledge and set off on your canoe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and just to give people a sense of the canoes as well, because that is another point of difference um, in terms of the vessels that were used um, by the Polynesians versus the later uh, European explorers. What were the canoes made from? So they were made of wood and um, they were double hulled. They're basically a catamaran. So they're double hulled with a platform across the two hulls and then usually a little like a little house on top of that and a, and a sail and a steering oar. Um, they were not paddled. They were they were used. They, they sailed them. Um, the the interesting thing to me, one of the most interesting things to me was that there was quite a lot of documentation of canoes in the late 18th and early 19th, especially the late 18th century before European vessels and European vessel making techniques were introduced into the islands. So you, there was a little bit of evidence about how these things were made and um, they were stitched together. Um, they would have a hull and then they would, this, there would be a sideboard, like a, a freeboard that would come up on the side and that plank would be stitched to the hull with the senate, which is a coconut fiber. Um, and you know, it, it, the, the, the workmanship is incredible. There was, there is one canoe, which was collected, a tiny little fishing boat that was connect, collected by, um, a, Brit- a British, um, Royal Navy, uh, captain in the late 18, uh, 1700s. And um, it's in the British Museum and it's really incredible. There are pictures of it with the stitching. You can see the stitching really well. It's quite remarkable. And in some places, you know, they didn't have a lot of wood. I mean, New Zealand, you know, is full of wood and the big islands of Hawaii and, and, and Tahiti and so forth. But in the Tuamotus, there's really no wood at all. So they're using bits and pieces, and they made these amazing canoes. They were actually said to be some of the best canoe makers in those places because they were really, really, really clever in the way that they would use small pieces of wood and put them together to make a seaworthy vessel. Mm. 
And one of the other elements to this story is not just how uh, did they, you know, settle on these um, different islands and and really make do with what they had in terms of the different natural situations and and resources at their disposal, but also thinking about why they set out and also why what spurred them on to um, go to such disparate and different islands and and spread out so far and wide and. Could you share with us some of the the reasons that have been proposed as to why? Yes, nobody really knows the answer to this question. I mean, I think that I thought about it a, a lot, of course, as I was going through this. And people always ask me this question. I, I, I think the way to think about this is that when you kind of understand the full scope of the this migration. It's not just the last couple of thousand years, which is the part where the Polynesian triangle itself becomes populated. But these are the descendants of a group of people known as, basically known as Austronesians. That's the language group, and that's what we call them, who came down from, you know, Taiwan is sort of the point at which we can we, we can sort of track them back to Taiwan, say, 5,000 years ago or something. And they work their way down. They're, they're sea people. And this is the kind of sea people of the story is that they they they're they're a, a marine culture and they work their way down through the Philippines and into Indonesia a branch of this group goes all the way over to Madagascar and the Indian Ocean they work their way over Papua New Guinea north of Papua New Guinea through the islands there and out into you know Vanuatu New Caledonia all out into there and over towards Samoa and Tonga which is the edge of the Polynesian triangle and so these people have been you know, all of that period, while they're working their way down through this area, they're kind of developing the the techniques that they need. They're probably developing the vessels that they need. Somebody comes up with the idea of an outrigger. Somebody comes up with the idea of double hulls. Somebody improves the sail. Somebody, you know, improves the navigational techniques. I mean, you know, it's like a gradual kind of thing. But I think they're the interesting thing is that they really are moving. They're kind of on the move for thousands of years. And they keep on sort of pushing out into, and and all through, when they're in those areas in the Western part of Pacific, they're not alone out there. You know, there are other people there at that point. And they're, these people, these Austronesians, they're kind of living on the edges of the, on the coastal, these coastal regions, maybe on the islands, off islands, you know, often. And they're, but they're just this really coastal people, the food sources they use, the kinds of ways that they do everything they're just designed for this life at the edge of the sea and the whole culture is, and they just kind of keep on moving. And, and I think also that in the beginning, you know, the Island hopping that they do for a long time is the islands are intervisible. You can see the next one. And then at a certain point they get out to the Solomon islands and from there, they're no longer intervisible and they make these big leaps. And that's kind of the, for me, the, the sort of cosmic moment, (laughs) you know, the, the, the existential question is they when they start to make the really big, and I think they're just explorers, mm. um, you know, I think they're just exploring and looking. And but they what's incredible is that they keep on doing it and keep on doing it and keep on doing it. And that they find places like Hawaii, which are just surrounded by nothing. <laughs> yes. And maybe we can just finish our chat on Hawaii because there is um, a great story which uh, Australians may be interested in featuring Captain James Cook and his demise uh, in Hawaii. Some people may not have known how um, he ended up dying, uh, but it was, I think, a, a really interesting story that you provided provided and it, it opened your book and set the tone, I think. 
So the story about Cook in Hawaii, you know, the Hawaiians don't like him at all. I mm. mean, there's a lot of reaction against Cook these days. And I'm I'm just going to stand here and say or sit here and say that I have a huge amount of admiration for Cook because he was really was actually a great navigator. He he. He, he didn't get to Hawaii until his third voyage. And I think he was very cranky by then. I think he might have been sick. He was very ill, very bad tempered. And he got into a um, he, he things were OK at first. He, he arrived in Hawaii and he sailed around the big island looking to, for a place to bring his ship in for a rest. They had been north up looking for the Northwest Passage. And then they came down and they went around the big island. And the crazy thing that happened was this is a famous story that it was not original with me, but that he arrived, he finally came into Kealakekua Bay, which was, they were having a big festival at that time for the god Lono. And Lono was said to be a god who would travel uh, counterclockwise around the island, carrying this big stick with a white tapa on it. And it just matched too closely what Cook had been. They had seen his ship sailing and sailing around the island in the same way with its tall masts and its white sails. I mean, it was just sort of, I think it was kind of spooky. And so he arrived and he was received in a very, you know, with great enthusiasm. Um, and then they were there for a while and then it was time for them to go and off they went. And then just off the coast there, his one of his masts broke. And so he had to return. And really, nobody wanted him to return at that point. He had been there as the incarnation or the representative of Lono. He had been feted. He, everything had gone well. And then he came back and everybody was like, what are you doing here? Um, and then things went really awry. They just went badly at that point. And he got into lots of arguments. He tried to kidnap somebody in order to get one of his boats back. And it just all went, you know, it went to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. And then he was killed in a, in a, in an, in an altercation on the, uh, in Kealakekua Bay. I, I, people have often thought that it was a very big, meaningful moment, but I've often thought that really it's, it, it was just like a lot of altercations that he was in over the course of many, many, many years in New Zealand in Tonga in Hawaii in a lot of places. And it was a dangerous business. He could have been killed in any one of those, but it just, that's where it happened was in Kealakekua Bay. And yes. the Hawaiians killed him. <laughs> yes, well, it's, you said uh, it's almost absurdly accidental and it might so easily have happened at any time. I, I do feel that way about it. I don't know that all historians feel that way about it, but um, I, I feel, having read a lot of Cook over the years, that there were a lot of moments that went wrong um, in his journeys. There were a lot of times when the British did not behave themselves in a very, you know, that when they got they killed people and they got into trouble and they just got a bit lucky that someone didn't kill them. Um, they could easily have been killed in New Zealand many times. Uh, and they just didn't get killed there. But they did in Hawaii, or he did anyway. Mm. So. And of course, Australia has its own very uh, horrible history with um, Cook and also just the British in general, and uh, and I know it's a, it's still a really important um, issue for us, given that we uh, still have Australia Day, and that's another uh, political issue for us that's still tied up with um, colonialism and and settlement. So um, I wonder, does it have a similar types of um, political meanings and uh, I guess tragedy and contestation in places like Hawaii? Yes, yes, in Hawaii, definitely, indefinitely. I mean, I think what happens with Cook is that Cook becomes a symbol of all that follows, um, you know, for better or for worse, in the same way that, you know, I don't know, George Washington is a symbol of whatever follows or any, anybody, you know, and I, I mean, he is the he is the figurehead of this of this opening gambit of the of the colonial era and the colonial era has terrible, 
terrible consequences for many people. Mm. So, so there's no question about that. It's just that I think of Cook as an individual, not as the not as the representative of anything in particular. I'm kind of interested in him as a as a man um, who lived at a certain moment and did a bunch of things. So, so I I feel like there's a lot of symbolism attached to him, which you know I understand it totally why it's there. But 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 yes, Hawaii has very very similar Australia and Hawaii and you know the Cook Islands and you know many other places in Polynesia very very similar uh, mm. take on this. Not so much in French Polynesia, but 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 in the British parts. Yes, exactly. Um, It's been so fascinating speaking with you, Christina. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us some of those fascinating stories. And uh, obviously, people can pick up the book and find out more and follow that chronological timeline that you take us through and the various islands within Polynesia that um, have their own unique story. Um, I really appreciate uh, your time and your creativity and congratulations on the literary awards that the book has received. Thank you very much. Those were a good, they were a real shot in the arm. They were great. Um, (laughs) And I really also appreciate your asking me to talk about it. It's a lovely distraction. Uh, We've done nothing but just refresh the news page all day long. So Mm. um, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I welcome uh, Gemma now to the phone and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Amy. Uh, now, Gemma, I believe that you are uh, flexibly working. Is that the case? Yes, yes. All universities uh, now are working off-site. Um, so like most of Australia, I'm, I'm working from home at the moment. And uh, it's really interesting to see the different challenges, obviously, from working from home. Um, I know that you uh, yourself are quite prolific on Twitter and um, that's how I've encountered some of the things that you've been saying and the experiences you've been having, um, not just now but also previously in the bushfires when uh, smoke pollution from bushfire smoke was a major issue and a major health issue and certainly would have touched the lives of people with a chronic illness, um, particularly those with respiratory issues. So this is not the first time in recent times that uh, people who suffer from perhaps a disability or from a chronic health condition have had additional challenges that uh, most of us have not. Yeah, that's right. So I'm based in Canberra. So for us, you know, this is our second state of emergency that's been declared for 2020, which is a bit crazy to think about. What we saw in the fires um, and no doubt we're about to see again is the way that inequities come to the fore very, very quickly in a national disaster where um, if you've got a set of underlying conditions or maybe um, you're vulnerable in other ways, um, you know, income, that type of thing, that those can all intersect uh, and make you more sort of exposed or at risk than somebody who's in a more stable or privileged environment. So we saw that happen in a matter of weeks in the bushfires, so we're very, very conscious that as we go into this disaster that that's something um, that we need to keep on the radar of government and services. Exactly. And uh, I know that the Centre for Social Impact, um, yourself and Professor Anne Kavanagh, among others, have uh, been advocating quite clearly and strongly about some of the issues that may um, arise and that perhaps have already arisen during the coronavirus pandemic and um, how 
people with a disability and people with perhaps mobility impairments and other impairments need to be supported and that issues like, for example, accessibility need to be at the forefront um, and the front of mind from medical professionals, but also from um, bureaucracy and and politicians, and when they're making decisions, that they are thinking about those um, issues and how it will affect uh, people with a disability in a different way than it would affect um, people in Australia who do not have to to contend with it, that kind of impairment. Yeah, and look, it's quite sort of multi-layered uh, in terms of the challenges um, that we're facing and what we're advocating around. So I'll, I'll walk you through a couple of them. So we've got people in our community um, with complex support needs. So um, that means that they can't self-isolate in the way that uh, other people might be able to. They actually need carers to come into their home on a regular basis. And sometimes those carers are doing really intimate tasks. They're helping people eat, they're helping people bathe, that kind of thing, where human contact's essential. So we've got a situation um, through the NDIS in particular uh, has exacerbated this, but you've got multiple carers coming in and out of a person's home. So I kind of explain, you know, one case I know of is 10 carers into one home each day and then those carers go on to potentially another 10 to 15 homes to do similar sort of intimate caring duties. So if you think about that, combining with a pandemic, you've actually created potentially a, a very serious vector, um, so a very good way for the virus to spread to extremely vulnerable people. But we also can't afford for those workers not to show up for the job um, because some people will die uh, if they don't have carers coming into the home to help, you know, with feeding and whatnot so and then there's another piece when we get to the healthcare system but Well, one of the elements that uh, carers have raised, and obviously I'm sure it may be a different experience depending on where you are, but some have um, raised the issue of personal protective equipment and that, of course, it's front of mind for politicians that they should be providing and making sure that there's adequate supply of PPE to hospital workers like doctors and nurses, but that carers also need access to this equipment uh, to provide their safety, but also to provide for the safety of others. Where are we at in terms of the status of that supply to the caring community? So both in terms of the, the informal caring community, where family members might be doing that caring or the kind of more formal workforce, we've had no guarantee at all as yet that they will get PPE. Uh, Bill Shorten did raise it yesterday in Parliament, which was great. The Greens have been raising it, but we haven't seen anything come out of the government um, addressing how they will be getting that to the workforce in the way that they have to the health uh, and aged care workforce. Um, we're essentially saying that everything you're doing in the aged care workforce has to be repeated over in the disability space, but we're yet to see very much um, movement on that yet. And we're very concerned about that because we do need to move quickly. Yes, it sounds like essentially where we would already be behind given where we're at in terms of the number of confirmed cases that are growing in a very um, rapid and steep rise. Yeah, and we're already hearing cases of services just aren't showing up for people because they've you know, pulled out or decided it's not worth the risk to themselves, leaving someone without something that they need. Um, and we've also had stories of people who have, to the best of their ability, gone into complete isolation because they don't trust 
the workforce to be able to care for them and then they also don't trust what's going to happen to them when they hit the healthcare system as well. Yes, and that uh, does raise another issue and it reminds me of previous conversations I've had in other interviews where... um, and I'm thinking particularly of a chat that I had with The Guardian's reporter, Luke Enriquez Gomez, and he was talking about the fact that um, during the Disability Royal Commission uh, hearings, which have been obviously paused at the moment, there have been so many examples in the healthcare sect- sector and particularly in emergency departments and on hospital wards where there is um, a real deficiency in the ability to communicate uh, with care, with clarity, and also with dignity to um, different people with disabilities and their carers. And that is already, I guess, a, a pre-existing issue that, that exists in many cases. And I've, in terms of the um, strategy and the steps that uh, the Centre for Social Impact has advocated, advocated for since March the 13th, but also um, continues to think are important, what are some of those related um, points that in the hospital system need to be considered yeah, so this is the other side of the equation that we've been quite concerned about and is that, yes, through the Royal Commission, a lot of that's come to light, but I think if you speak to anybody um, with disability or a family member with disability in the community, they can probably tell you a bad, several bad experiences they've had with the healthcare system. Uh, and what we're likely to see now is a greater influx of people um, with complex needs or intellectual disabilities um, coming into the healthcare system, partly because those people are more vulnerable to this disease. Um, and then also because we're, we're still hearing uh, providers think about and talk about the healthcare system as a provider of last resort. So you say, what are you going to do when somebody um, in your care gets very sick or gets this gets COVID at all when they say, oh, we'll just take them to the hospital. Um, The problem is what happens when you get in the hospital. So, I mean, we've been pushing very hard that, um, and, you know, there are government agencies connected to the NDIS, like the um, National Quality and Safeguarding Commission, which is the regulatory body for the sector, are pushing the health um, departments, and we are, to try and get their uh, healthcare workers across what it means to provide good quality care under these circumstances for people with different types of disabilities, but particularly um, with intellectual disability as well and complex needs. Um, Again, look, it's not something that we've seen the movement on that we would really have liked to have seen, so we're still pushing very hard on that. Yes, and one of the points that I see is that um, there's been a a really concrete and I think, um, great suggestion that they might put together a small dedicated workforce of doctors and nurses who can specifically provide services to people with a disability through video conferencing, the telephone, home visits, and of course, in different um, care facilities. Do you think that this, um, those kind of suggestions that are quite clear and concrete and pragmatic have a precedent and may be implemented or have the potential to be implemented? I think they absolutely have the potential to be implemented and clinicians who work in this space are, you know, ready to do that and want to do that because they're very concerned as well. Um, so we just we just need some commitment from the government and absolutely think that that could happen. And, yeah, that is one of our strongest recommendations Yes. Well. Well, and one of the things that um, 
may not be uh, something that we would think of is that when it comes to the coronavirus um, and the types of public health measures that we need to be able to enact, uh, like washing our hands, it seems like a very simple and easy thing for people to do, but it's not always simple and easy depending on the facilities for people with a disability to do. And also depending on where they're at, say, for example, if they're recovering from a neurological um, episode like a stroke, that it's often really difficult to comprehend and process uh, instruction and information and to then enact that in a physical way. So what are some of the things that the um, disability sector is doing? I have noticed that there is certainly uh, different services putting together websites with really clear, plain English uh, information that can help uh, people who might be suffering from those types of challenges. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's some good training videos that are, are going up online as well. It's, I think there's one on the National Disability Insurance Agency website, one on the Quality and Safeguarding Commission website as well. They're a little bit targeted towards providers, but anyone in a caring role, um, you know, they're very accessible, could look at those videos and, and get... Um, a little bit more up to speed on the kind of best standard of hygiene in this situation. Uh, and then, yes, there are, there are specific providers who are looking to, um, you know, how do we support people uh, who do have those more sort of complex um, situations in their lives right now. I think part of what's challenging in this is that those people are, are already sort of experiencing distress because so much is changing around them um, that you might, not everyone is in a position to be able to comprehend we've moved into a pandemic and this means suddenly hand washing is an important thing and, and all these other things are changing or your, your regular care might not show up. So I think it's also recognising that um, it's going to put added pressure on people who are already um, quite stressed Uh, as well, sort of mentally and physiologically. Yes, and another way that this has played out in a more clear way has been that uh, going to the supermarket is or can be a very uh, substantial trip and it can wipe someone out depending on their disability or health condition for a day or or much longer. And uh, given the shortages that we've been seeing at supermarkets, uh, it's been obviously in the news that it's affected the elderly um, who, of course, would have uh, personal challenges and mobility challenges to get to the supermarket on a regular basis. But then it also does impact uh, those people with the disability who may rely on um, a carer to turn up once a week to help them do their shopping, um, those kind of things. Do you know what the sector is trying to do to ensure that people um, are, are able to get these essential items without um, ha- making their physical uh, conditions worse? Yeah, so I think there's, there's some work going on um, to sort of try and get more delivery happening out of kind of major change and, and working with smaller um, supermarkets and, and whatnot to get um, shopping delivered to people. Um, I also think that we're seeing a lot of community responses, and we saw this in the fires as well, that ultimately in these fast-moving situations, governments can't act as quickly as communities can act. Uh, and so we're seeing people sort of reach out um, and, you know, 
within neighbourhood groups and that type of thing. And so, OK, what, what do the people around us need that um, we can help each other out with? So we're seeing some of that grassroots action as well. Mm, it does. It reminds me of a, a pharmacist um, down where I am raising this issue that many of his customers couldn't get to the pharmacy and uh, so many people volunteering to provide a pickup service and take it off to their neighbours um, or the people in their town to make sure that they're getting their medication as well. So it seems like this is a very important part of communities, this um, initiative that individuals are taking but also then people joining in and providing support very quickly and responsively. Yeah, yeah. And as I said, we saw this in the fires that, you know, there are things we need government to do and it's not about stopping pushing and pushing for government to do that, um, but just by the very nature of the complex policy processes and structures that make up government, they are slow or slower. Um, and sometimes we, yeah, community um, and grassroots stuff can come together, you know, in a moment's notice and swing into action and we're starting to see that, which... Um, you know, I don't want that to remove the responsibility of government, but on the other hand, it's really important. Um, we know that it works and it's good to see that that's starting to happen. Exactly. Um, you know, and that's where access to Facebook and technology, and you're probably aware there's a lot of different groups, NGIS groups on Facebook, um, who support one another through like, how to navigate the system and, and they're starting to turn their attention towards um, issues with COVID as well. So mm. a lot of those discussions are going on. Yes. Um, now, I know that your expertise and the focus of your research in recent times has been around the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And of course, for those who do not interact with it and um, it's not part of their life, they may not be aware of how it's been working and not working in many ways. Um, obviously, it, that's a complex topic in and of itself. But could you just share with us some of the relevant elements at the moment of the National Disability Insurance Scheme that perhaps... Um, need to be working better and uh, are slated to, um, I guess, have attention brought to it, uh, given that this was an unexpected situation that we're now in? Yeah, so I think the first thing that's important to say is that the NJS, it only covers a fraction of people in Australia who um, identify as having a disability, um, but it is people who have severe and lifelong disabilities, so that it's largely people with um, more complex needs. Um, which doesn't say that there are a lot of people outside that who have comorbidities that make them vulnerable, but yes, the NDIS is a particularly kind of vulnerable set of people within our community. How the NDIS works and, and what's sort of become a bit unfortunate now we've got a pandemic um, is that it has kind of gigged the economy of disability workforce. So what happens now is a person gets given a budget of money and they purchase services from a, a marketplace, essentially, that meet their needs. Um, but people and providers and organisations are then only paid when they show up for service. So we've created a situation where we have more people coming and going out of um, a person's life and a person's home through the NDIS. And then we've also laid on top of that that they may not get paid if they don't show up, which means that we've kind of put pressure on them to show up in a pandemic and potentially expose people. So one of the things that we're asking for and we're starting to see some movement on is putting in some financial guarantees for people, um, providers in the NDIS. Um, 
so that we don't have that sort of awful conflation of their um, need for an income but, you know, coming together with a vulnerable person, meaning that they show up and spread the virus. Uh, and the NDIA is, is talking about how we'll um, support providers through that. Something else I was about to tell you and it's fallen out of my brain. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe we can touch on um, some of the funds that have been a subject of discussion already. They had been um, previously and people have criticised the government for, um, in their mind, withholding that funds and not using them up when they're there to be used specifically on the NDIS. Um, has the government since been freeing up those funds and making them more accessible to people so that they can spend them and uh, and use these care? that um, they have access to and the different equipments that they also need. Yeah, and that reminds me of what I was going to say. So part of the issue is that we didn't have really strong markets in place to begin with. So we're going into this where we had kind of developing and emerging markets for people in the NDS to buy their services from, but really still in a very developmental stage. And that's where a lot of the media attention when you open the paper and you hear about someone's had a terrible experience and things aren't working, it's usually... Um, that those, those disability service markets aren't yet in place. This um, is another hit to that um, because, like everyone in Australia, it's you know bringing financial instability into that. When we talk about um, you know plan, it gets called plan underspend, and that's that chunk of money that keeps being kind of. Uh, you know, coming up in budgets, the different political discussions about we've got a saving, are we going to put that money towards drought? What that is is that um, people have been given a plan um, and they haven't been able to spend it, they haven't been able to spend their money. Uh, it can often be because the services aren't there or it could be there's something going on in their life or with their experience of the scheme where they, they can't get um, to that service. So every dollar that, or it can be people sitting on a list waiting to get onto the NDIS. So every dollar that is called a kind of, you know, surplus that comes from NDIS money is actually a vulnerable person who isn't getting a service. What we're starting to see some talk of, and Bill Shorten um, spoke about in Parliament yesterday, was that we needed to get everybody through their plans, um, make that money more flexible, open it up uh, and not be quite so sort of stringent about how it gets used. So when you have a plan, it often works a bit like um, you've been given a menu of services and supports, and, and it's, it is tailored to you, um, but it's very specific about what you can access with it. What Shorten is calling for and, and what we're starting to see the agency move on is allowing more flexibility about how those funds get used as people need to adapt to the current situation, which is really fantastic, um, and hopefully that keeps moving quite quickly. Exactly. And um, one of the elements that you referenced there and that perhaps we can just quickly pick up on is the fact that, as you said, um, the NDIS is for a certain uh, group of people who qualify and then there are others who then uh, also qualify for the disability support pension but may not uh, qualify for the NDIS. And there are also those with a disability or a chronic health condition that is debilitating who do not qualify for the disability support pension but do qualify for the job seeker allowance, which is previously known as New Start. And so there are all these kind of layers of different government support at different 
levels. And in the last uh, day, we've seen some development on the welfare payments front, which we were discussing in the first hour of the show. And one of the kind of glaring um, differences at the moment and that the government um, has really created is that uh, there is a coronavirus supplement payment that will be added to the job seekers allowance as well as those who are students at universities and TAFEs, um, but they are not being extended to those on a disability support pension um, or the age pension. And I was wondering what the um, research and what the sector is thinking around that kind of disparity that now has been created and, and the difference in funding or, or funds being available for everyday expenses. Making sure everyone's pretty pissed off. Um, yeah, I don't know why the disability support pension wouldn't be raised along with the job seeker. I think it would be particularly frustrating given that a lot of people have fought very, very hard to get off of you know the punitive job seeker system and mm. onto the, a more secure disability pension just to find that they've now got half of what they would have if they hadn't swapped over. Uh, it really makes no sense in any practical terms at all to have done that. Um, and there, you know, again, everyone is screaming for that to be addressed and hopefully it is um but yeah it makes it just makes no sense at all yeah it's been done I, I don't, haven't really seen uh, any coherent rationale or any rationale at all, really, to um, suggest why that decision has been made. And it's interesting that Labor in the Senate and the Greens were advocating for students to be included, um, but the disability support pension category uh, did not make it overnight. No, no, it didn't. And I think maybe some people misrecognise thinking that if you're on the, you've got disability support pension, you're on the NJS, like that these two are synonymous when actually only 15% of people on the NDIS are on the disability support pension. So they're actually two fairly independent schemes. Um, there's only a very small overlap. So just because you're getting NDIS funds for your support doesn't mean that you're getting disability support pension. So we can have a lot, like we do have a lot of people out there in the community on the disability support pension who probably also need, will definitely also need those extra funds. Um, yeah. And they're not, they're not getting it through the NDIS. So I don't know if maybe there's a bit of confusion um, around the way that those schemes interact or actually don't interact that much and that's contributed to it. Yeah, well, it's obviously a really important issue and certainly uh, ACOS, when they've been arguing for a raise in New Start um, or the Job Seekers Allowance, argued that this would provide uh, a rather large stimulus for the economy given that the people who need these payments will be spending it uh, predominantly and uh, that's because their expenses uh, really don't keep up with what they actually receive and, of course, they, they don't get to save a huge proportion of that um, at all. So I wonder um, whether that economic argument needs to be made, but it's clearly um, a huge glaring oversight from um, a, presumably a minister who should know and understand their portfolio quite well and that those payments and schemes are quite separate. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I also think it's sad that we have to make an economic argument about mm. people's lives. Exactly. Yeah, the social argument and, I mean... There shouldn't need to be an argument, really. It just should happen. No, no. And like the job seeker benefit, um, you know, I'm not a disability pension expert, but I do have someone in my family on it. You know, it's, there's been a very punitive approach to that. It's been cut back over, you know, the last 15, 20 years or so as well. So it really is a very small pension. Um, it's very hard to live on. And, 
yeah, it wouldn't cover, for example, you you would really struggle to cover getting good like PPE gear in for yourself or for your family members um, if you were on that. So it's mm. yeah, it's not acceptable. Yeah. Indeed. Um, Gemma, thank you so much for taking the time to explain these issues and to delve deeper into some of the detail of it. I think um, I feel certainly better informed now of some of the challenges, um, but of course people can understand what all of those challenges are and what the Centre for Social Impact as well as other institutes and groups are calling for um, themselves by looking up your website, uh, csi.edu.au, and also also looking at other um, related groups. There's also um, an, a Centre of Research Excellence in Disability and Health and um, there, there are other institutes. That's actually um, the driver. Of mm. So I would direct people to that rather than CSI. Um, on that, we're collating as much uh, information as we possibly can um, for both people with disability, their families and for the sector and it's all going up on that website. So Excellent. place to look. That's wonderful to hear. Uh, thanks so much, Gemma, and uh, yeah, I hope that you're doing well as best you can. And uh, thanks so much for advocating and uh, speaking with us today. You too. Thanks for having me. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on Three Triple R FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between nine a.m. and twelve p.m.